Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. This episode takes us back to focusing on one of the most important trends in the world with Danny Hernandez, a research scientist on the Foresight team at OpenAI, one of the world's top AI research labs. His work is focused on measuring progress in artificial intelligence and the factors that drive it. And this can potentially help us make better predictions about where the field is going and when and where machine learning is going to develop important capabilities. If you think, like me, that breakthroughs in what thinking machines are able to do could have a huge influence on society in coming decades and centuries, then forecasting when those breakthroughs are going to happen seems extremely valuable. Today, Danny is speaking with my colleague, Arden Kayla, who will be familiar to regular listeners, because among others, she's been a co-host on two of our best-received episodes of all time, uh, episode 67, David Chalmers, on the nature and ethics of consciousness, and episode 72, Toby Ord, on the precipice and humanity's potential futures. People have emailed in to say that they have loved Arden's contributions to the show so far, especially her perceptive follow-up questions, and I'm sure that will be the case for this episode as well. Just a quick reminder that applications are still open for the Effective Altruism Global X virtual conference, uh, and they'll stay open until the start date of the conference, which is the 12th of June. If you're interested, go to eaglobal.org and click through to the application. All right, without further ado, here's my colleague Arden Kaler interviewing Danny Hernandez. Today I'm speaking with Danny Hernandez. Danny is a research scientist on OpenAI's Foresight team, which is one of its safety teams. Danny's work focuses primarily on measuring progress in AI in order to help us better understand the field and where it's going. Before he was at OpenAI, Danny worked at the Open Philanthropy Project as a consultant on calibration training and attaching forecasts to grants. Before that, he was an early data scientist at Twitch. There he made a popular tool for prediction training and transitioned to helping the company better manage planning after reading Phil Tetlock and Dan Gardner's book, Super Forecasters, and How to Measure Anything by Douglas Hubbard. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Danny. Hey, Arden. Great to be here. Today, I hope to talk about forecasting, two recent blog posts from the OpenAI Foresight team, AI and Compute and AI and Efficiency, progress in the field, the safety teams at OpenAI, and possibly working on AI hardware as a path to impact. But first, what are you doing at the moment, and why do you think it's really important work? Yeah, so I'm working on, on measuring AI progress, and I think it's, it's really important because a lot of a lot of people are giving a lot of attention to AI and trying to decide like, okay, is this something I should work on? Is this something I should think about? You know, politicians, researchers. And I'd like to ground the conversation in some measurements and evidence because otherwise it seems like people can talk past each other. And it's, it's quite difficult for like uh, someone who's not an expert to evaluate the claims people are making about how important AI is and how much attention it should be getting. Do you have an example of like people talking past each other or a claim that's like opaque without, you know, some of this evidence that you're gathering? Some people are saying that AI is the most important technology that people are working on. That's kind of a claim that, that people are, are making and that, you know, lots that like kind of everybody should be making, should be giving it lots of attention. I think that's kind of, you know, this, this generic claim. And then there's, there's also a group of people that, that are trying to, kind of ground the conversation in what AI can currently do. And don't like speculation. Think of speculation and or forecasting really as, as unscientific. You know, the norms of science are around engaging with existing evidence, not around speculating about the future. And so they're trying to talk about what, what AI can currently do. And other people are talking about what AI might be able to do in the future. And those and people are like, usually 
those people are usually the ones that are saying that AI is going to be one of the most important technologies to work on, are the ones that are talking about the future applications. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think that's what, how they talk and can can disagree is that and talk past each other as they're talking about about kind of two different things and problems. What should AI be able to do in the future, and, and what can AI do now? And they're they're related, but but forecasting is its own kind of strange expertise that's not that common and requires kind of like different different norms and a different different kind of way of thinking about evidence and weak evidence. It requires thinking about weak evidence a lot, and so it's quite different than than science in this way. So, would you say that? Working on forecasting AI and measuring progress in AI is trying to ground some of the claims that people are going to make about future AI progress in like something a bit more tangible that might be a bit more respectable to the people who are interested in talking about what AI is doing now. I think so. Yeah, I think I think everybody can be everybody's interested. Well, the measurement gets you what AI is doing now, but in a, in a way that can sometimes be extrapolated. Right. One of the most reliable ways to, to try to forecast the future is to just have some line and be like, this line continues or a curve and be like, this curve continues and to have some kind of intuition for what would stop the curve. That that's, This is kind of a more straightforward way to try to forecast things than or and, and kind of more understandable and generally accepted than something like get a bunch of super forecasters to make a forecast on that thing. A bunch of super forecasters making a forecast on something that's like compelling to me. But that's not not what you people are usually looking for when they're trying to set their expectations about the future. Yeah. Also, I mean, like just extrapolating a trend is like one thing that can go into a forecast made by super forecasters. I'm sure like they'd be extremely excited to have that piece of research. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, measurement in AI, measurement of AI progress is a particularly difficult measurement problem. I was just like thought about lots of different kinds of measurement, you know, qualitative surveys and lots of quantitative measurement at, at Twitch and yeah, it just like feels like one of the fuzzier things I've ever tried to measure. Interesting. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get into a couple of measures of AI's progress that you've worked on at OpenAI. Do you want to say anything quickly about like just why it feels fuzzy to you in, in comparison with other things? I guess I'll just describe like what does a crisp measurement look like? You could think about a corporation. It's trying to maximize profits. It measures its revenue and it measures its costs. You could think of like accountants as the first like people who are focused on measurement all the time and they knew all like the interesting measures and data at their company. And that's like what really, really good measurement looks like. And then imagine that you had like that level of measurement for AI progress. You're like really far away from that in terms of having something that, that is like that connected with like what progress actually looks like. So then you come up with these like proxy measures. Yeah, a problem can look more like that. Like sometimes you you come into something and you're like, okay, there's just like this straightforward measure that is very connected to the thing that I care about. And it's like trivial to find and everybody agrees on. Um, and, other, and other times it can be its own kind of research project to find a measure that's interesting. Okay, well, we're going to return to these topics when we get to the papers that OpenAI has put out. But let's talk some about forecasting first. So it seems like uh, there are two different kinds of forecasting that you have tried to improve in your work, as far as I can tell. So there's like forecasting at the individual level, like improving individual people's forecasts or even the forecasts of organizations where that means just like trying to put a probability on some event happening in some time frame. And then there's like improving the public conversation around certain kinds of events where that feels like a little bit fuzzier to me. And like forecasting is one thing that might go into that. 
both kinds of forecasting seem sort of extra topical right now because of COVID-19. A lot of people are talking about needing to forecast the progression of the disease in order to do adequate policy work and figure out, you know, for instance, when to open certain kinds of businesses. It also feels like it's made forecasting more salient at organizations like 80,000 Hours, like one thing that we're sort of struggling with this question right now of, well, does COVID-19 and the economic impacts mean that our advice should change in some way or our strategy should change in some big way and like trying to forecast the impact of it so that we can like be ahead of that change. So like improving those kinds of techniques, I mean, they always feel important, but I feel like they, it's sort of especially obvious how it's important right now. So I'm excited that we're having this conversation. We've talked about some techniques for the first kind of forecasting in our episodes with Phil Tetlock. That's uh, episodes 15 and 60, which listeners should uh, go check out if they're interested. So those are things like getting quantitative, where that means instead of saying, I think this will probably happen, you think, I think there's a 60% chance that this will happen or a 70% chance that this will happen by a certain time. And uh, forecasting in ways that allow you to get lots of feedback so you can figure out how you're doing and sort of hone your skills. Do you want to add anything or highlight anything as especially important for that sort of forecasting? Yeah, so I think a lot of making good forecasts starts with understanding. So I guess, you know, as far as things kind of that Tetlocks talks about that resonate with me are kind of breaking things down apart and, and getting quantitative, something that I think about as more like an individual trying to make forecasts in one domain for a long period of time is being able to pass like the ideological Turing tests of the of the experts that I'm talking to. So what I want is to understand their viewpoint, to be able to summarize it and have them be like, yeah, that's 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 basically right. And like and to keep going. I think when I've heard of the ideological Turing test, it's been in the context of like, how do you know that you're not you don't have a totally crazy view of your like ideological opponent's view, like a total straw man? Well, if you can explain it to them in a way that they would say, yeah, that's somebody on who believes the same thing I do then you've passed the Turing test. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like, where I think with, with scientific views, people kind of can have that same sort of thing where the belief is very important to them. They have a different feeling about you if they're like, okay, this person like gets it. it even if you don't totally agree, they're just like, okay, this person like understands it enough to like put me at ease, I think is, is kind of what, what's happening and why that, I think there still is something that feels a little ideological about it, being able to explain somebody to somebody something in their, in their terms. So this is important for forecasting because you want to be able to basically represent lots of different people's positions in a way that they would agree with, because that just shows that you understand their positions relatively well. Well, so you, okay, so you could think about understanding the different experts is kind of like, it's kind of like model uncertainty. You don't know who, what experts are right in the world. If you could just choose which experts to listen to as a leader, that would solve all of your problems. If you're like, which experts do I listen to in different, in different times? Like you've solved all your entire problem of leadership. And so you, you really evaluating experts is this like critical problem. And if you can explain their arguments, then you've kind of like internalized it and you've avoided this failure mode. Whereas like you could imagine that there were some, some experts, they made some arguments to you. You couldn't really explain them back to them, meaning you didn't really understand them. And so like later you'll have regret because you'll make a decision that like wouldn't, you wouldn't have made if you, if you actually understood their arguments. So you, you could like try to avoid all of those you know, this like regret minimization, you could try to, you, if you want understanding is, is kind of this path towards regret minimization. And we could tie it back, back to COVID where you're just trying to figure out which, which epidemiologists, you know, do I want to defer to here? Yeah. There's certainly been lots of disagreement among experts about what we should do. Yeah. 
And so like, I could imagine, you know, in some distant future, that's at least some of these experts have built up a track record. One expert could just kind of stand out and look kind of like Nate Silver in elections, where they had just predicted the trajectories in many cities for a long time, had made lots of predictions, had like the best write-ups of lots of stuff additionally. Maybe they're listened to by now, maybe they weren't listened to initially, but but they just have this track record that looks like very different to them than other people's and is like much easier to understand. And so then they would have made themselves kind of an easy expert for some people to be drawn to. Okay, so there's this problem of like, which experts should we listen to? And obviously, that'll help a lot with forecasting, because they're going to be making forecasts. Is that or sorry, is that the main way it helps with forecasting? Or is it just to help you have an understanding of the problem area? So you can then make forecasts yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's helping you with lots of things. I think it's helping. I think both effects are important. Okay. So you have, say you have a difficult problem and you want to have, you're not, you're not really sure. Like in COVID, you had just lots of model uncertainty. And one way of representing that is be like different experts could be right about the world. And so a good way to make an overall forecast is to put some weight on each expert's view being right approximately. And to do that, you want to understand that view so you can evaluate it yourself, at least somewhat. Like that, that would be ideal if the overall forecast is, is, is yours. If you have a long time, you could just measure everybody over, over a long horizon and then figure out who's, who's right. But as is, if you're the decision maker or you're helping the decision maker, then, as then I think you want to. As you measure their track record. Yeah, you could measure their track record, yeah. But you usually don't have that long because usually there are urgent decisions that you, you care about. And so that's, that, that kind of goes into another thing in the like making forecasts in a domain, which is I think you want to get to at least like new higher level in, in a domain that you want to make forecasts in. For me, that's been product and, and engineering and, and AI research. This also just gets you a lot of understanding and it, and it makes it be worth the person's time. The best experts are hard to talk to. They're busy. And so if you want to produce good forecasts, you need this valuable resource, expert time, and it needs to be worthwhile for you to engage. That's one way of being having some of expertise in their domain helps. You get to, you ask them qu- good questions. When you ask good questions, people recognize it and they're like, okay, that's a good question. They just like wanted to think about it anyway. And they're like, they're pretty happy. And so that's like the rare raw input that, that, I, that I think about often is, is experts. And I think it's particularly the case in, in AI that it's quite difficult to get much expert time. And right now with epidemiologists, it's very hard to talk to epidemiologists right now. And so you really have to make it very clear to them it's worth their time for them to want to engage. Do you want to just talk about the ways, like various mechanisms by which you think the work at OpenAI can help inform and improve the public conversation around AI? Maybe I could describe some ways the communication is notable or something. Like there's some, some aspects of it that seem intentional. One is that there are blog posts that kind of are targeted towards just a broad audience that would include any any like kind of decision maker like all just all in, all decision makers in the world they're part of this of this audience so that could be you know that could be CEOs that could be politicians that could be political analysts other researchers and 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 actually the blog post is often what is is what we as researchers want first also it takes a while to in depth read a paper and before i want to decide if i read a paper i would rather read the blog post so it's really just targeted at everybody and I think another thing is that once you, you have this, you can also, you can take it to the people that you wanted to talk to and wanted to see it. So Greg Brockman and Jack Clark have both like testified in front of congressional committees on AI 
once you've like created something that like should be part of the conversation, then you can like go all the way of like taking it the last mile to the people that you wanted to, to see it. I think those are like two kind of notable ways. And then among amongst researchers, you know, I think it's just like a more productive debate to look at a piece of evidence. So I, I, I think that's like the main point. But you could you could also think of it as you could try to be constructing, you know, say you have five or 10 things that are like two to four pages long that you would just be like, okay, somebody who knows literally nothing about AI, what should they read? You could think of these as beginner materials, which I think, you know, I think ADK actually puts quite a bit of effort into this, this kind of thing. Having accessible materials. Yeah, I think accessible materials are kind of like high impact and like maybe slightly less exciting than novel work to people. So you have to like be motivated by impact, I think, to want to make accessible materials. Yeah. No, uh, listeners should definitely go check out the blog posts for the papers we're going to discuss. You definitely do get the main point in the first two sentences <laughs> and the graph. It's great. So how do you figure out what research questions are most valuable to work on? There's lots of inputs, but one input would be it is kind of, you know, forecasting related, I might, at some high level, I might be like a Peter Thiel type thing. What are like the most interesting things that I think are true that, that people disagree with? What are the most important such things? I might start with those. What are just like the most important problems in the world? What are the most important problems in my field? What are the things in there that are the most uncertain, where there's like the most information that's the most tractable to get? And then like, where's my fit? So it's, it, that's all pretty abstract, but I think there's other things where I'll assume that there's one, one kind of big true thing and that I just need to, I need a simple model of the world and I need to just like double down really hard on whatever seems most important and is working. I think that's like another way that I'll try and do stuff. And then you try to test that big true thing. Try to test it and try not to get bored. This seems like there's often a tension between Questions where their answers are really interesting and are really going to push the field forward and questions that are really well-defined and tractable. So like, for instance, in the first camp, you might think, if I could have the answer to any question that's going to help me understand the progress of AI, like you might just say, well, what will transformative AI do? These kinds of things. I mean, it's obviously a totally intractable question. It's hard to, it's, it's, it's ill-defined. And then like the tractable questions and the more well-defined questions are sometimes like, farther away from what you ultimately want to know. Like how much money was invested in AI companies between 2010 and 2020 or something like that. And I'm just wondering if you have any techniques for sort of like finding the sweet spot of like things that are the most informative, but also still tractable. In the same way I kind of described choosing experts is like almost the, is like almost the entire problem of leadership. I feel like long-term planning is like a similarly difficult question or like your research agenda. And that figuring out what should be on your research agenda just like kind of lead there's lots of like generically good advice like talk to people that will improve your research agenda you know think about how important things are and how tractable things are i think it's hard to add something novel to the question of of how to pick your research agenda and i think for me it's like I try to make, I think the novel thing I might be able to add is like, I try to make the gnarly forecast of like the thing I actually care about that seems totally intractable. I'm like, what do I believe currently? And then I think about where does that come from? And like, what does that make me want to look into? And what it makes me want to look into are the things that are the most tractable, that would be the most informative. 
Okay, but it's like you 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 figure those out by first trying to tackle the like really gnarly question, even if you don't end up being able to answer it. So I'm curious whether you have any tips in particular for thinking well and forecasting well very unlikely events that are super impactful. Listeners will know we're sort of especially interested in those sorts of events at 80,000 hours. And it seems like even things that aren't sort of existential risks, but are still very terrible, like COVID-19, show that we don't quite know how to think about these as a society. It seems like we sort of got burned by not being able to really appreciate like how bad something could be, even if it was a bit like pretty unlikely. Do you have any like specific tips about how to think about these tail risks? You could try to make better institutions. You could try to make a more like numerate public. When I think about numeracy here, I think about, you know, understanding probabilities, thinking they exist in the world and are real and are things you can say and believe and understanding exponentials. And there's there's not that much else in my like list of be numerate besides that. But those aren't things that are particularly emphasized. You we have like 12 years to like make people numerate. And like, we don't really try that hard to make them understand either of these two things. Yeah, I guess like, the thing that seems especially challenging about forecasting, or trying to figure out, okay, how probable is some very improbable event? Is it like, there's a 1% chance or a 1.5% chance It like really matters if the thing is a is a really big deal. But it's just really hard to get very fine grained in our forecasts. And also often, you know, we're talking about events that have like no precedent. So we can't do reference class forecasting as easily. And I'm just curious if there's like any techniques that you've come across that might help us get better at trying to get accurate beliefs about those kinds of events. I think there is something that's like often extremely helpful and neglected, which is to try and define a decision boundary. The conversation, it was like, how likely is this thing? It was not at all like, how likely would this thing need to be for us to take different actions? And if it makes sense to take a bunch of actions, if there's a 1% chance of this thing, then everybody can agree that you do that. If there's a bunch of other actions that you can agree on 5% and 20%, it's like you both, it's like you have this very complicated decision with a lot of uncertainty. The other thing, right? Like, what would we have to believe? We have like perfect information about that. We like know what we would have to believe or like we get to decide. It's like our, it's like the decision maker gets to decide what they would need to believe in order to do that. Yeah. They just have to introspect. So that would be something like if there's this chance that this many people will die in a global pandemic, then we should institute this policy and we get to decide what that threshold is. I guess it feels like it's not always, it's not always clear that we get to decide that because you might think like, well, what is the impact of that many people dying like it's there's lots of further questions how costly is it to implement the policy that you know you're putting a threshold on you might not know the answer to that question so it feels like you still there's still like other other unknowns that might go into the setting of the threshold yeah there's still there's still questions and i haven't thought about this decision boundary thing as much in in covid i think if we go back to ai you could be something like what chance would i have to put on a transformative science capability like when, when I think about transformative science, I think about that a lot of science comes out of great scientists, right? Like it's Einstein, it's Turing. It's like, what if at some point AI was making it so that it was like there were more such scientists? You know, at one level, it could be actually just capable of being that scientist entirely on its own, but it could also just be making such scientists. So, so okay, so given that kind of setup, it's like, what chance would you need to believe to be interested in AI or to want to work on AI? 
Is that like a 1% chance in 10 years? Is that like a 10% chance in 10 years? Like, what is the threshold? And people have like very different kind of horizons that they're interested in and probabilities that are meaningful to them. And they can actually make a lot of progress on that part of the question in terms of like thinking about whether or not they want to work on AI like quite quickly. And then it is like their, their like intuition again, like when, when do they feel motivated and excited or like philosophically excited or something, right? Like they get to decide this threshold. Let's talk a little bit about just your path to where you are right now. So you're on the Foresight team at OpenAI. Before that, you were at the Open Philanthropy Project. Before that, you were at Twitch. Can you just talk us through that transition? Yeah, so I can start off with Twitch. At Twitch, I started off as an analyst, just like really into kind of, you know, understanding what people did and, and why. That was like the question that, that really motivated me and made me want to work on the internet. Twitch's users. Yeah, Twitch's users. Twitch is where people watch each other play video games on the internet. And it's like bigger than most people think it is that aren't, don't know what it is. Okay, so yeah, I was, I was there. I did a bunch of different things. I like led the mobile team for a little while. I did project management. I did kind of engineering management. I learned to be an engineer. I didn't kind of come, show up knowing that much software engineering, which was kind of strange. Then I became a, a data scientist, the kind of data scientist that produces evidence. Like I would look at the database. I'd be like, okay, all the users, they show up on our website. They do a bunch of stuff. All of these, we track all of these things. I would turn that into like evidence as to like, what should we do? What are these people? What are their problems? Where are they getting stuck? What things are succeeding? How much are they succeeding? I see. So you were kind of working on strategy questions, which are sort of related. Yeah. So that's like one kind of, of, of data scientist is like, you could think of, yeah, you could think of it like analysts just like negotiated for a better title when there were like better tools that made them higher powered. And that's kind of, that's, that's like one side of data science. And like, you know, sometimes I did some machine learning things, but a lot of the time the thing to do was something very simple. And then I, then I read how to measure anything and super forecasters. And I, and I went to, to a CIFAR workshop and kind of all of these things got me. That's the Center for Applied Rationality. Yeah. And so when I read how to measure anything and, and super forecasters, I realized that like these were the questions that I wanted to ask the product managers and other people at Twitch. I wanted to know what they expected to happen. This was like the thing I most wanted to ask them and understand. And it was like this book gave me permission to ask the question that I wanted, which was like quantitatively, what do you expect to happen? What probability would you put on the thing you just said you want were gonna would would happen um, at like, Twitch. Yeah, at Twitch. That this feature would like increase revenue by 10%. How likely do you think that actually is? And like, let's see what happens. That was that was a question I wanted to ask them. And it didn't feel normal or or and it, but it's like how I thought of, of the world. And so yeah, then I just started kind of pairing with people on 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 trying to help them make forecasts that were useful to them. And I got really excited about it because you know, I, I guess the way I think about it is my old meetings, I would have I would have meetings with people and like I would often feel like I didn't succeed in what I wanted to happen or something like that. Only 50 percent of these meetings were good. And then when I started having these meetings around forecasting where where we tried, I tried to help them. You know, they, they seemed to be very happy at the end. Like I thought the meeting was super interesting. Now I was like, OK, 90 percent of my meetings are good and now I can have as many good meetings as I want. And I have to figure out some better way to scale this thing like there's something here. Is kind of how I start to feel. So these are people are coming out of these with personal forecasts about various things happening at Twitch. Yeah. Then I made this training, like uh, in how to measure anything. He has this calibration craning curve, and so I was like, okay, I'll try and make make this training. 
And in a day, Do you want to just say I, what like, a, this- Sorry, we've talked about this with Professor Tetlock, but just for people who haven't listened to that episode, say what calibration training is. Yeah. So, so that, that thing I just described before where like, you know, somebody launches a product and then they see kind of what happens, they could have made a prediction. You could imagine that all kind of being a very tight loop where somebody makes a prediction about something that we, is already known in the world and then they get the answer immediately back. And so they, and they, they just keep doing this. And so if you, if you do this, you know, over two or three hours, it's pretty, it's like most people become calibrated. They become so that their probabilities are like reliable things they think have an 80% chance of happening, happen approximately 80% of the time. And so I was like, I was excited about this. And I made this training where as this, as this data scientist, I, I just collected all the most interesting numbers at Twitch for the entire history of Twitch. I just like had them all in my head and I, I could have written them up in a document or put them in a, in a presentation, but like both of those would have been kind of un- like uninteresting to people that would have bored people. Like they'd already re- seen these numbers before in past analysis, but I, I had them try to predict it. I had them try to predict the numbers I thought were most impactful in describing Twitch as a business. And they were like super interested in this thing. I made this thing in a day because I just had all these things cached. I had this like unique knowledge and I sent it out and like maybe there's like a, a thousand people at Twitch and maybe like a hundred of them do it in a day. And, you know, I, I had one question at the end where I was like, you know, would you recommend this to a colleague? Kind of like, would you recommend this to a friend, but the, the business version? And 97% of people said yes. And in and that, and that moment, I was like, this is, you know, I'd, I'd read all these books about minimum viable products and like product market fit. And I was like, okay, this thing, this kind of calibration training has, has this product market fit where it's like, you've made it so that it's, it's questions the person was interested in instead of it being trivia. Yeah. So how useful do you think this calibration training was for making people better forecasters? Well, I think it took them from totally uninterested in forecasting to able to make forecasts, like somewhat comfortable. Some of them were good at it. It made it so that the ones that were good at it and were interested in it, like that the other people would, re- would listen to them or accept that as like a reasonable form of communication. One way of thinking about it is like, I think it was more useful for almost all of these people than talking to me for two hours. That does seem much more efficient. Do you think it makes any difference that these weren't properly forecasts, right? These were guesses at things that were already the case, things in the past, as opposed to forecasts, of course, we're talking about guessing at what's going to happen in the future. Do you think that makes any difference or is that just cosmetic? I think the thing that matters more is that it's in the domain you care about. So I wanted people to be able to make these kinds of forecasts. I also just wanted people to remember these numbers and be able to cite them without looking at them as a range even. to say stuff like, Somebody's like, how much did we grow in the last year? And to like be able to give a range, like it was between 40 and 42% and to have them be like, right. And like not have to look it up so the conversation could keep going. That's pretty so Yeah, that, I, that's the kind of range I could have given, I think, when I was there. Like I would have known how much we grew by that much. I would have looked at it. And then we wouldn't have had to look it up and we could have kept going. But I think, I think most of the time it was like, if you are forecasting on something that you just don't know about, like some of the things were like product launches that happened before they joined that they never heard about. And so I, I think that there are beliefs that are just kind of hidden from you in the world, like information that's sufficiently hidden that you could predict on in most domains. And, and you would, and it's like, would be just as good as if you, in terms of training you as if you were making future predictions, it just would like take a lot less time and be a lot of work to connect, collect the scenarios. Like you could imagine, I don't know, I, I, have, you, have you seen these like Harvard business case studies? It's I've like a pretty big things. thing in the business world. Uh-huh. I think if those were good, 
they would look kind of like this. It would be like something in the past and you would guess what happened. They wouldn't tell you what happened. You would just like guess what happened and then and in a bunch of ways that were interesting. And I think that would be similarly good because it's just like it's old stuff that none of those people are they're usually not familiar with. So I think I think you can predict on the past stuff and learn. So how did this turn into consulting for the Open Philanthropy Project? Yeah, it was kind of a, a standard story of of talk to of talk to people who might be able to help and talk to people that are interested in the thing you're interested in. But this uh, calibration training tool that you made was a helpful experience for being able to do what you did at the Open Philanthropy Project? Yeah, so they wanted people to be calibrated there. They wanted to like make a calibration training for their staff and we just talked about about what that what, what like that should look like and how it would be good and then I helped some of their program officers kind of make some make their, some of their early and first forecasts to like get a feel for it and like see that it's like a was a useful exercise to them and like what it could be like to be a useful exercise and then at some point that they were like particularly interested in, in AI forecasting AI and they're like for somebody like me they thought that was like a particularly impactful way to go and I, I thought it was like just really interesting I was like kind of always motivated by AI I remember reading yeah I read a lot of sci-fi and always thought that AI would eventually be really impactful. And I remember kind of reading arguments around how AI would be impactful and just being like, yeah, I agree with these. I just didn't have any way to act on it before. So you ended up transitioning to working on informing forecasts about AI in particular. That happened before you started working at OpenAI? Yeah, I started kind of thinking about forecasting AI progress at uh, while working with OpenPhil and then transition to, to doing it at OpenAI. Because I think, I think open, like earlier I was talking about like this kind of rare, rare resource of like, you're trying to forecast something, you want to talk to experts and like the better the experts, the better, the more access you have to them, the better. It's, it's like maybe one of your most important resources. So I think, I think, I think OpenAI or an AI research lab generally is just the kind of best place to, to do this kind of thing. Cool. So how important do you think it is for lots of people at an organization to be able to make good predictions in order for that organization to be successful? Should it just be the leadership, you know, when they're making, setting their strategy, or is it actually like pretty helpful for everybody to be able to make these kinds of predictions? I think lots of organizations can be very successful without making any predictions, to be clear. I think there are returns to everybody being able to do it, but it's kind of like a cultural like a like a numeracy rigor in a, in a numerate rigorous culture, I think you kind of want everybody to be able to do it. And I think what you're doing is you're training everybody to be a bit of an executive. I'm going to talk more abstractly about future organizations that could exist. So you could imagine an organization in which kind of all of the like I'll talk about a, a startup because I understand such organizations a little bit better, where all of like the people that were like product managers are kind of like the mini mini executive generally, but like there's other people like engineers and designers that are all working on a project. And I kind of want them all to make predictions because it could be that some of them have really good executive judgment as to what will succeed and fail, but they just have this other expertise and that's what they double down on because they can clearly succeed in that domain or not. And this like executive domain is more like it takes a while to observe, it's kind of stressful, and like it often requires managing people and all this other stuff rather than just like figuring out what will work and what won't work, like this judgment around that. And what I'd want is just like measurements of like how good everybody's judgment is on everything that's really important. And so that those people can be 
so you can talk to those people and listen to those people on those questions. And so then I'd want it, want it everywhere. And you could imagine a company that's less political because it's just, it has a better measurement of people's judgment. And so, yeah, you have this, this kind of, the more measurable success is, the less political things become, like the more obvious it is that somebody is succeeding. I see. So where political means here means something like there's some sort of power game going on. You make allies, you know, you don't actually believe that a thing's important. You're just like trading favors and stuff. And you could think of this as like some overhead tax on a company that like some companies, you know, like politics or something, it might be like 90% of the effort is going into political things. Well, po- possibly, sounds proper or 80%, in that case. Or 80% or 70%, I don't know, but it's like a high fraction, right? Versus like a startup company with like two people. They're just trying to succeed. They like, there's no, there isn't a game to play. They just have split things up or whatever, how they're going to split it up. And like, now it's really just time to do stuff. And like this overhead kind of goes up. The like less measure, like the bigger you are and the less clear it is what's working. The, is the second thing because you can convince people that you are the expert, even if you're not, because there's no clear measure of whether you are yeah. or not. And so then you have to convince them through other means, like being very persuasive or making allies. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So- One thing that came to mind when you've been talking about the importance of forecasting in like organizations, like including businesses, is that I'm sort of surprised that people haven't been implementing these techniques for a long time. So this is not like a new technology that, you know, was just invented and that explains why people haven't been doing it. It's like these concepts seem relatively old and learnable by lots of people. And it seems like if it really does make it more efficient and more possible to function really well as an organization, why do you think organizations haven't been adopting these sorts of techniques for a long time? Yeah, I think that nobody has made the user experience good. You're a business, the business is the user. The business is thinking about whether or not to adopt these forecasting techniques. What's that whole experience like? Is it obviously good? Is it obviously good the whole time? Does it have quick returns? Is it easy for someone at this business to implement this thing, have people think of that as a success and like have the thing grow or not? Why hasn't that happened? Well, one, I think just like not very much effort has gone into forecasting at all total, right? Like you you have some, you have like Tetlock's work is great. There could be a lot more people. It like looks, I think this domain looks very promising, seems very important to the world. Not that many people are in it. It has like long horizons. It takes a while to produce work that's meaningful. I also think that the place to do it is with new businesses, the place to make it part of their culture. So, I mean, also, I think I thought about trying to do it and it looked like a long, slow thing. Even, I, I even, yeah. But you ended up, you ended up doing some of this for the Open Philanthropy Project, right? Yeah. So I guess my, my conclusion is like my overall metric was I wanted to influence decision making positively at the highest level. It's kind of how I thought about comparing working on improving forecasting generally to AI. And well, when I, when I looked at AI forecasting, you know, it was just it was just a lot more. It was just obviously working and people were very interested. And I was like, OK, I think this I think this is just a lot more tractable and maybe and more impactful. I thought it was like both. And so, yeah, when I look at how hard I think it is to make, I don't know, civilization as a whole have more foresight broadly, then, yeah, it's a big, it's a big hard task that I think somebody would have to have a lot of different domain knowledge to have. Like, I think they, 
I think that the way that the way that academics have approached it is they're like they're kind of doing what I'm what I'm doing now, which is they'll show up and they'll help people make forecasts while they're in the room. And then you could think of the super forecasters as like, okay, now I've given you a business interface. Give me ten thousand dollars and I'll give you forecasts in a domain that you're interested in. I was like, that's that's more scalable in a way that they don't have to be in the room anymore and that can keep growing. So I think that I think that model kind of makes sense and that people might use more of them in the future. But this other thing of like make it just obviously valuable to be kind of rigorous and, and quantitative in lots of cultures in this way. Like I think I think that that would take something more like I think like calibration training that was targeted at startups that like led some startups to like grow into the next Airbnbs and Googles, then they like had this as part of their culture. And then like Fortune 500 people start copying them or Google starts copying them, but they like grew up with it and like have shown that it's good and they're getting real advantages out of it. I think that's like the way, I think it has to be this, I think it's like more likely to happen through this sort of like bespoke new organization thing because I, it it's a lot of political, you're, you are going to try and show that some executives are incompetent. Yeah, I guess. So the reason I'm pursuing this sort of line of questioning is basically, you know, this seems sort of just like obviously good to me, like, well, have better beliefs about what's going to happen. That makes you better at acting in the world. And I'm trying to think of reasons why that might not be true. And the thing that seems the most obvious to me is like, well, if it was true, then people would have done it more. So I I think on analogy with management training, right? So there's like tons of literature and tons of academic work on like what makes a good management structure. And, you know, supposedly this is because some of this allows firms to make, to to perform much better, even though it, it involves having to go in and like change some stuff. This seems like it should be like that. Forecasting is, seems like in a similar genre, and it seems like it should be similarly popular, but it's not, which makes me wonder, okay, what's going on? Maybe it's not as helpful to put these exact probabilities on things as I would have thought. I think it, part of what I meant by the UX not being good is I agree that lots of people come at forecasting and they see that. They're like, yeah, this, this is how like decisions should work. And other people come, but more like, I don't know, 90% of people kind of, you explain it to them and why it should be a good idea. And they just are inherently skeptical probabilities don't seem real to them. They think it's going to be like a lot of work and a lot of rigor. Maybe they're scared, but like their initial stance, like calibration training that's on trivia, that's really only appealing to people that already just kind of believe or like intuitively think that this whole kind of line of forecasting is a good idea. And other people, you know, they show up and uh, their initial reaction is negative and like you, and it never gets overcome. And but I think calibration training could over like did overcome it at Twitch for people. It was like a calibration training about a thing that they were interested in. And like that flipped this switch towards like, okay, they're like, this makes sense. And they want to communicate in this way sometimes. But I think for the average person, the user experience of starting forecasting is is pretty bad. You like make some forecasts, you're like, I you have no idea if you did a good job. You find out in a long time, like you're worried you're gonna be wrong, like you're really uncomfortable. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty bad experience. I will say that when I have, so I've done the calibration training that OpenPhil released and it did like a little bit just make me feel like an idiot. So I can see why maybe some people, yeah, it's like, they're not super excited about doing it <laughs> just because like probabilities being sort of way off the mark and being sort of shocked by how far off the mark they were. So maybe that's a really common experience. And I think calibration training is a better experience than just trying to start forecasting on your projects. Like 
it could easily take you two years to get that same level of signal of like, I'm just overconfident all the time on all the things you really care about. And like, at some point you're just going to stop because like, that sounds pretty unpleasant to just always be wrong and to not see how, and it to be that slow. So before we leave this topic, what do you think we need more? More research on new techniques to make us better at forecasting or even like other aspects of decision making or just more implementation of what we already know is relatively good? I think I'm like most excited about people trying to leverage calibration training like generally because that's the thing with the fast feedback loop. I think we have a solid grounding of research but and that we could like use more entrepreneurs in that space with that have kind of this goal of improving civilization's foresight. I think that's like the main reason you would pursue this, not because you like think it's a good way to make the most money. I do think there is research to be done. The research question that I would have encouraged people to do is to see to what degree calibration training generalizes. You could imagine a setup where you had people take calibration training in like random on like 10 different topics or something and in different orders and try to figure out like what percentage of people are, are kind of generally calibrated and like what is being generally calibrated look like. If I'm calibrated in like three domains, does that mean I'm just almost certainly calibrated in all domains, even ones I haven't seen before? Or yeah, because mo- almost most, most all of the studies are on, on trivia. Yeah, I guess this sort of relates to the question I asked earlier about does it matter that the things that people are being trained on are things that already happened? You know, you could imagine that it's much easier to be calibrated on some kinds of things, perhaps things that have already happened than things that will happen in the future. I mean, I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but this is a this is a question of generalization. And you want to see more research on that. Yeah, I'd like to see more research on that. I also think it could be nice to just be like certified as generally calibrated. So let's move on to talking about these two papers that have come out of the Foresight team at OpenAI in the last year. So AI and compute and AI and efficiency. Let's start with AI and compute. Can you just tell us exactly what was measured and what was found? Yeah. So AI AI and compute, what was measured was the amount of computation in terms of of floating point operations that have gone into training the largest uh, neural networks, where floating point operations are like additions and multiplications and subtractions. And what was shown is that kind of between 2012 and 2018, that this went up by 10x per year, 300,000x total. And uh, AI and compute was the first thing I worked on at OpenAI, and it was joint work with Dario Amode. So there was also an addendum released that studied compute before 2012. And I feel like that's really useful for getting a sense of what's really going on. So can you describe that? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at this same kind of question, how much compute went into kind of learning and uh, training systems from like the 60s to, to 2012, then now kind of this compute is just following approximately Moore's law over this this long period of time. And so like you're going from, you know, 2x every two years to, to 10x per year. So it's just this, just, you know, it's like, it's a nice graph because there's just a clear kink and it's like, okay, whatever's happening in this domain is different than what's happening before. Yeah. So do you have a sense of what did happen in 2012 that caused the big change in the growth rate? I mean, I would credit it to AlexNet, which is this, this machine learning result where, you know, before this, you had kind of like handcrafted heuristics 
kind of assembled by experts to recognize images. And this kind of simpler neural net system that's like a, a lot simpler to create, um, took a lot fewer people than most of these other systems, just beat those old systems by a huge amount. Maybe like it got 70, got like 79% accuracy where old systems probably got 10% less or 15% less accuracy on the same, same system. And so it just kind of, it just was the first thing in which neural networks were kind of the state of the art system, right? In the 90s, neural networks were like, well, I'm not sure about how good handwritten digits systems were before, but in, in the 90s, there were neural nets that were kind of could read handwriting or could read could read numbers and, and transcribe things. And that's kind of maybe the most interesting thing that happened before. So we had this really interesting model that was just like much more successful using neural networks. And then is the compute growth just a matter of people being like, well, this is now worth it for me to to invest a lot of resources in order to be able to do a lot more computations because this seems to be actually getting returns in performance, whereas it didn't as much before? Yeah, so yeah. So it's like the systems that like learned before, they didn't get returns from, they were never had capabilities that made people want to keep ramping up investment. It's kind of like they never hit like product market fit or something. It was like never clear how that they are, they, you were going to be able to leverage them to do something interesting. I, I mean, just from kind of these vision systems, I think it pretty clearly was true that you were going to start to be able to do economically interesting things with, with neural nets. Like as soon as you saw AlexNet, you could know that there would be interesting economic applications. So you say in that blog post that the three major drivers to AI progress are the amount of compute available, algorithmic or conceptual innovation and the amount of data available. Why do you think people started ramping up the compute in particular around 2012 after this proof of concept? Well, I think the compute was faster to ramp up than people, though people have ramped up. But like it takes a while to get a PhD. And that's like some portion of the field is kind of like that branch of people who got PhDs. And that, that takes a while. People have people driving algorithmic innovation are researchers and you just can't can't ramp that up very quickly. Yeah. Though so, I mean more people are going into those programs than before. So it got ramped up somewhat, but there was just a lot of compute in the world doing lots of other stuff. And that so it's like capital moves around maybe faster than people. Yeah, well, sorry, what does that mean? There's a lot of compute in the world. Like it feels a little abstract to me. There like there was a huge amount of compute computation in the world that wasn't doing AI stuff that could be moved over quickly. I see. So this is just available computers and chips. In Google's cloud, in Amazon's cloud, computers that are on people's desks that were not doing AI research before, that were gaming machines, they're like, this is my, this is my AI research machine now. Yeah, so there's just a lot, of, a lot of GPUs that you could buy to do AI research that before were just doing other stuff. So in terms of what this result means, do you have a view about whether compute just sheer amount of compute is more important, less important than these other factors or more important for certain kinds of phases of advancement or anything like that? Well, at least from this work, I'd say like the AI and compute thing didn't make it clear whether or not compute was more important than other stuff. It just made it clear that it was like worth paying some attention to and was like very measurable. And I think it makes it so that you can look at a model and try and understand how, why is this thing better and get a lot of extra context. So sometimes something is better because it had more data or because it had better algorithms. 
but other times it, it seemed like it was mostly just better because it was it was scaled up or something. And so if you don't understand the amount of compute that went into the system, then it's hard to evaluate which of these three things was like most of making it better or was it some combination or to what degree do you want to attribute to each? So to go back to like an earlier question when you're like, how do you decide what to do research on? I think this sentence was like part of how I was trying to think about my research. I was like, okay, how, that's a very interesting question. How important are each of these three things? And one of them now is well measured. So all the uncertainties in the other two, what are the best measurements of the other two to try and to try and think about this? I see. So maybe we can't draw a lot of conclusions from this, but we can now we have this measured. So once we can measure the others, maybe we can actually say something about, you know, what's the combination of these factors in the most the best performing systems out there? Yeah. Interesting. So it also says in the blog post that you see multiple reasons to believe that the trend in the graph, that is this exponential increase in compute used in training the most high-performing systems, is going to continue. So, And you cite the fact that there's a bunch of hardware startups that are developing AI-specific chips and that they're promising to have much more efficient chips that can you can do a lot more compute with a lot less money. Is this just a general observation about computing that like, look, we're going to be able to have more of this resource available, or is this something more specific to AI? Like we're expecting to see the investment of compute in AI grow to a greater degree than for everything else. Well, maybe to caveat, I like pay attention to hardware. If I'm like not a hardware expert. Hardware experts make chips. If somebody claims they're a hardware expert and they haven't made lots of chips, then I'd be skeptical. Okay. Keep that in mind. I think maybe what I what what I can say is like Moore's law made it so that most specialized chips were uninteresting for a long time. Like you just if you try to make a specialized chip, it's like two x better, it's four x better, but it costs a lot of money and it's beaten by general purpose processors like two four years later. So like it's just it was never and it's like quite expensive to make chips. And so GPUs were kind of the second thing that got that was like chips that were made at, at large scale. And that was like for for video games and for and some other applications, but video games seem particularly important. Hence the um, graphics processing unit. Yeah. And their their computation is a little bit less general than than CPUs. It's like more parallel, right? Like there's a lot of it's like they just kind of could rely on the fact that there were always a lot of pixels on your screen and a lot of parallel operations to do. And that one way in which AI is different is that there are very few kinds of chips that people are trying to make, and one of them is AI chips. And so it's possible that this will lead to a meaningful gain in efficiency, that like you have all these people and they, they see this as like one of the big things they should try to do, is to try to make AI chips. There's lots of startups, and so there's just some chance that somebody will succeed. There's lots of uh, startups and a lot, and the large companies are also quite interested in anything they can do in the AI space, in hardware. So maybe the answer to this question will be too technical to be of interest slash understandable to me slash our audience. But what makes an AI chip an AI chip? I mean, at the abstract level, it's just it should be that it's designed for what ML researchers are currently doing and doing in the future. And, and so it's, it's this kind of hard target, but it should also be quite flexible because it should be able to do the things that they're interested in in the future. I think I often think that the most interesting hardware question to me is like, what will happen to Moore's Law rather than the AI hardware chips? Because the AI hardware chips you could think of as like mostly a trend on top of that, that are some like offset. 
and that could be a large offset, but the long-term trend is kind of Moore's law, whatever happens there. And so that's that's kind of what I think about more often and what long-termists should be more interested in. If you're like a long-termist, then like Moore's law is like really big over the next 20 to 30 years, whatever happens, even if its exponent goes down some, you really care what the new exponent is or if there's no exponent. Can you explain what Moore's law is and what it means to say, like, what's going to happen to it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of news articles that say Moore's law is dead. You would like see a lot of those. I I guess there's been a lot of those for a long time. And so it's kind of hard to evaluate what's going on with it. But if you look at, you know, CPUs and how much kind of more efficient they've been getting in terms of, you know, flops, floating point operations per dollar from like 1960 to like sometime in 2000, they just like very reliably grew, got like 2x better every every two years, 2x cheaper. And then after that, it seemed to have a different exponent in the CPUs. And it's unclear if it's going to continue to slow down or go back to its old or like go back to its old speed, right? Like you could have some new kind of hardware regime where it's like underneath Moore's law, there's like a lot of S curves, a lot of things that died and were no longer no longer got better. But then you found some new thing to replace it in many domains. That's kind of, that happened like before. And so it could be that when you just zoom out in the history of the humanity, a hundred years from now, like our current thing is an aberration. And Moore's law just goes back to its own spe- old speed or speeds up or whatever. But if you think about, you know, what's the most interesting compute trend, it's definitely Moore's law. And that's like the long-termist most interesting compute trend. And most of what's, much of what's happened in compute kind of follows from that. You know, if you know more, if you're in the 60s and you know Moore's law is going to go on for a long time, you're ready to predict the internet and you're ready to predict smartphones and you're ready to make 30 and 40 year long investments in basic science from just knowing this one kind of fact. And you could still be kind of in that position where if you if you think you know what's going to happen with Moore's law. So aren't you just ready to predict that we'll be able to do more computations for the same price at a certain at a certain rate? Or like we'll be able to do more computations without it being that much more expensive. And I guess that 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 gets you part of the way to the internet and smartphones, but I'm not quite I'm not quite seeing how it gets you all of the way. Well, it got I mean, it got people at DARPA they were kind of talking about how this is where things were going. It's like there were people and they kind of could tell. Like the people that were most in the know, they saw this trend and they're like, this is what this trend means. And they were right. And like they didn't put probabilities on it, but like they just were right about the most important thing that happened in the world based on this trend in the past. And so I think we should still like respect it, like pay a bunch of attention to this trend and be like, what does this trend mean about our future? Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, just to be clear, I wasn't exactly skeptical. I was voicing the sense of like not being able to quite connect the dots in my own head between this efficiency and these advances that we're seeing now. Yeah, well, so I guess the way they thought of it was like when they looked at computers, they're like, okay, my computer fits in a a warehouse. And they're like, will it ever be on my desk? Will I ever have enough computation to have anything more than just a cursor in front of me? What if that, What if the computer that currently weighs... 100 pounds on my desk fit in my pocket, you know, they could have like imagined that they could like draw a curve and be like, this is when that happens. And, and they're like, oh, and this is when the computer gets to a price point when like everybody's going to want one, probably. And maybe that was 10 years from when they started to kind of think about it. But you, you really care about about the exponent, because you could be trying to imagine some point in time in the time of like, you really, you really care as to like whether or not it's, you can fit that phone in your pocket in 20 or 30 years or like a thousand. 
or or 500 and the trend and like depending on the exponent either world seems like it could have been plausible okay cool so we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because this is more related to ai and efficiency but just to get back to ai and compute for a second i guess one one question that i would just love to get clear on is why is compute so expensive so one thing that this this huge explosion in computation explains is why it's so expensive to run these really advanced AI models. Do you have a short answer for, for why it costs so much money? I mean, I think the question is like, why are people willing to spend that amount of money? Or like, why are the marginal returns to spending that money worth the cost of spending it? Because like initially you could have thought about computers very cheap. You know, AlexNet was like somebody's, approximately somebody's souped up gaming rig you know, it's like a computer with two GPUs. It's like a researcher on their desk type thing. And so at some point, that compute was super cheap. And then what people saw was that they could make their systems better by scaling them up carefully. Like that was one way to make things better. And so they were willing to do that as long as the, the returns to doing it were better than the costs. So that's why people are willing to spend a lot of, a lot currently when they spend a lot of money, in the same way people are just like, the world's giving a lot of attention to AI, the world's giving willing to like spend a lot of money on AI right now also is what is is how I'd see it rather than compute being expensive. Before we leave that, do you have a sense of like, is it just that people are seeing like future promise in these AI systems? Or is it like right now there's a lot of money to be made in running these really computationally expensive systems? I think another important point is that AI and computers about training systems and that the training of systems is actually a small fraction of their computation. So for instance, Google had this paper about a model called WaveNet. They were looking into like letting people search through voice. You're going to hold up, you know, maybe in like 2013 or 2014, they were like doing these calculations and they realized that if they got a meaningful amount of voice traffic, maybe like 20% of searches were, were voice searches, that they'd have to double their data centers. So like that was from running the model not from training the model. And so that made them very excited to try to make a more efficient version to run of that model. And if when you're talking about running a model, you're talking about Google doubling its data centers, then that's, that's like a lot of money. And you start to be willing to spend a lot of money training something if that's how much money you're going to spend running it if it actually is that successful. So what ways does this research update you, if any, on how quickly you think AI will progress in the coming years? So it seems like there might be some reasons to think that having to invest a lot of computation means that, you know, progress in AI might actually slow because it's really expensive and maybe we won't be willing to do that for that long. And some reasons to think maybe it could speed up. It shows everybody has all of this, a lot of interest right now. Do you have a view on what some of the most interesting arguments are on how this should update us on our views about AI progress in the future? Yeah, I think I think for me, it was like a modest update towards more progress, but I think it's not obvious. I think that I agree that it could, if the, tr if the trend ends and the trend was driving a lot of progress, then that seems like that would make progress slow down. I think part of part of my intuition around kind of of TAI is that transformative AI of transformative AI. Like what I was talking about, you know, these these kind of about there's some there's some milestones, you know, there's some things that could be built that would be very impactful. And I was talking about these scientists earlier. One very like simple model of the world 
is that only one of these three like factors kind of compute data or algorithms is the main driver of progress. And if I'm like when I'd only seen the AI and compute results, then the way I thought about it was was that at least in the from the 60s to 2012, this like compute thing is this main driver of progress. And like if you had some model of of AI progress, it might have looked something like you know as soon as we have well the algorithm stuff will just kind of happen and like lots of it'll be ready and just kind of ready in the background. You've got kind of backprop and convolutional neural nets and all like this kind of stuff. Kind of all the stuff that you made AlexNet with was just kind of waiting for compute for you know 10 or 20 years or something. And so now in that for a while it was it was kind of compute and you could have like this kind of simple model of the world where you think there's one limiting reagent and if it if you do model it as compute then you're like okay at some point we'll get capabilities and there's some capabilities that once we get to some num- amount of compute like I was talking about you know science kind of science stuff something that is faster like that should happen before you can just like make a great instantiate a great scientist is you should have some tool like a microscope or something or a telescope that you can make with AI that just advances some domain of science and and like really quickly that wouldn't have happened otherwise you know I think biology is a pretty is a pretty good thing like alpha fold could be such a thing that happens um, I think there's lots of uh, lots of things like that that could happen and so it could be that that will happen kind of as soon as you should expect that to happen kind of quickly after there's enough compute to enable that technology. And you just like don't know what that level of compute is. You just have like huge amounts of uncertainty. It's like, where are these things? And they could easily, and one 10x could easily push you over that such an edge. When you think about how humans look compare, like we have this one, we have this one capability, humans, that it seems like, you know, something like a 4x scaling up of of chips. Where this now people would argue about what's this. Sorry, what's like the capability? Uh, the capability is human level intelligence. Okay. And it seems like it's chimp level intelligence scaled up by 4x compute. Where I'd say their brains, I, I, people would dis- people could disagree. There's like some literature kind of discussing this claim, but from what I can tell, you know, humans seem mostly like scaled up chimp brains, rather rather than an algorithmic improvement. And so you at least have one example of like, okay, like 4x can in amount of compute can be the difference between a very a much more powerful system than another system. And so yeah, I think we should have quite a bit of uncertainty as to what can what can happen when you when you make a bunch of when you increase compute by a lot. So saying that it's true that human beings' brains are basically scaled up chimp brains are the, where the main difference is compute. And you know, taking the results from AI and compute, one thing I'm not quite following is how any of this shows that like compute is a big driver of progress in the AI. Is is it supposed to be that look, people would not be willing to invest this much compute if it wasn't having big returns. So the fact that they're willing to invest so much compute suggests that it's a really big driver of progress. I think that's an argument that you could make that like people see returns to this thing. And so it must have some value. I think the argument I was trying to make was you have this compute thing, it's going up quickly and it's possible that that has a large effect. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's because, that's right. Because <laughs> we because we don't we don't understand. You know, we our model of this system is like pretty poor. Uh huh. Yeah. And it seems like in other systems that are like somewhat similar, it seems to make a really big difference how much compute. Yeah. It at least it at least can make a difference at some point. I mean, well, this doesn't quite seem to actually decide between thinking that these results mean that progress will be faster or slower, right? Because if you thought, well, I mean, it, basically, it's just 
we're very uncertain and we don't know how long this trend is going to go. Yeah. So I think it, I think it depends on what you kind of start off kind of believing or something. Yeah, maybe your like priors matter quite a bit here and like how impressive you think the current systems are. And yeah, so I don't think there's like a definitive case to be made. I think that it's just that it's like a measurement that should be in your arguments somehow. You, you should have this measurement in your arguments. It's not really clear where they go. It is really clear what to do with this measurement if you're like, if you're in, if you're in industry or something, or, or if you're in government, right? Where in government, I'm like, look, the AI researchers are in academia are going to have trouble. There's a growing distance between the amount of compute that industrial labs have and um, researchers in academia. And that makes it so they can't, when they do their research forks, they like, it's like one person can't verify the research of other people. They like kind of get very different research interests as a result. And so, you know, it's like, it's kind of like all the, like, I want, I want academics to have, you know, particle accelerators too. I don't want all the particle accelerators to be owned privately. That sounds weird. So I think the government should be like looking at giving like large amounts of compute to academics. Uh, and I think that that's like a clear thing you could get out of this. So I think it's, it's quite hard to get evidence on this question we were talking about before as to like, what does something mean about, about TAI? But I think there's like lots of other ways to draw like a clear thing you should do from this, this measure. Or like if you're, or if you're like a CEO of NVIDIA or, or a chip company, you like show this graph to your investors and you're like, look, they want more compute. I'm just trying to do this. Like there's demand for this thing I'm trying to build. And so it's really clear what this means to some people. And it's, it's like a lot harder to draw what it, what it means here. Yeah, that's helpful. I guess on the, on the government's providing compute to academics point, I suppose like we already knew that these private firms had access to a lot more resources. Maybe what this shows is just like one way in which they're spending their resources. And it's like sort of suggestive that this is going to be a way that this particular resource should be made available to academics as well. Yeah. Cool. So let's move on to talk about the new paper, AI and Efficiency, which should be up by the time this episode goes on the air. So the headline result of that paper is that approximately over the same period as AI and compute studied, models now require much less compute to do the same sort of thing. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that result and what you think it means? Yeah. So this is kind of my attempt to measure algorithmic progress quantitatively. And yeah, so it, it takes, specifically, it takes 25 times less compute to train something to AlexNet level performance, where AlexNet, we talked about earlier, it got everybody excited about machine, about, about neural nets. And there are lots of reasons that, that I like this. One is that it's in the same units as the AI and compute result. They're both about, they're both about like what's happening with, with compute. And, and you can kind of like, yeah, you can kind of like make a merged worldview with them. So yeah, I guess it's a this sort of a clever way of measuring algorithmic innovation indirectly by measuring compute, which maybe is more measurable and more comparable. It makes your results more comparable to the other piece of research. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing that I like about this, I'll just, I guess I'll just explain how algorithmic progress usually gets measured in AI research. What usually happens is you know, you release like some new paper, like ResNets were a new thing that got released in, I think, 2015. And they showed that their top five accuracy, their ability to label, to classify, you know, that a picture was, you know, a dog versus a cat versus a tree, 
that like they were they could get the top five classes with 93% accuracy instead of you know maybe 92% accuracy was like the previous state of the art. And so it's like all of the it's like kind of a bunch of complicated measurements that need to be explained like that that are pretty hard to understand like and explain. And there's just like lots of them, right? There's like Go, there's there's like Atari, there's all of these things, and they all kind of require quite a bit of context to understand how impressive is that really. It also and seems so, sort of unclear that it's necessarily the algorithmic innovation that's doing the work there, right? Yeah, and it could have been they scaled up the models. Um, so it's like, but that's how people talk about, I guess that's how people talk about capabilities progress. And they like to tie it to algorithmic innovation because algorithmic innovation is like the most prestigious way to have made your thing better. But, but in normal computer science, in computer science, you know, when you talk about something like sorting, you talk about its computational complexity. You're like, Here's an algorithm, and you know if you want to sort a list that's n entries long, it's going to take this algorithm will take n times the logarithm of n, and this other algorithm will take n squared, and this other algorithm will take n cubed, and like all of algorithmic progress in traditional computer science is talked about in terms of computational costs. So getting that computational cost down, the amount of time it takes in this example, but I guess also the the number of computations. Yeah, the number of yeah. So they assume yeah. So you could. Formulated as either, but yeah, usually it's formulated as operations or time given a consistent amount of compute. But in those in those domains, it's like more straightforward to like do that analysis to come up with that number to like come up with this like yeah. And in but we can use kind of this this same lens in AI where we focus on like reducing computational costs. And given that we're we're training to constant performance, yeah. And so I think I think this is like a, a generally good way for researchers to compare. It's like an axis that, that gives me a lot of clarity as to like how their, how their system is better than previous systems. For instance, some systems make progress on this axis. They're more efficient and better, and they like get to a new capability that's never been reached before, and some just get to a new capability that's never been reached before, and they're less efficient at earlier parts, at getting to earlier levels of capability than other systems. And so those are just like different ways to make progress, and I want to understand. So can I ask how you're isolating algorithmic innovation here in particular? Because, you you know, if there are three things that go into progress in AI and capabilities progress, compute algorithmic innovation and data, how do you know that the models aren't, when you're when they're being run to like do this AlexNet thing, how do you know they don't have access to better data? Yeah, so you you run them on, they're trained on internet, so they're trained on the same data. Okay, so you, so you guys were actually running these you experiments. Get, yeah. Yeah, I ran these experiments. I use the same data. Cool. And I just count the amount of compute they used at, at every amount of training. So one thing I want to get clear on. So when I first read this, I thought, well, this seems to suggest that performance must be rising a lot because we're using exponentially more compute and we're 25 times more efficient with the compute that we're using. So that sort of seems to undermine any concern that we're getting sort of diminishing marginal returns on the amount of compute that we're using, unless a bunch of it is somehow being wasted, which seems unlikely. But then I wasn't really sure if I really could conclude anything about how much performance has been rising from the observation that we're using a lot more compute and we're getting more efficient with using it. Can we draw any kind of conclusions about that? I think so. So one of the graphs I have is about kind of like this concept of effective compute. So we're trying to compare kind of what we could do now to what we could do in the past. And in the past, what we could have done is we could have done some simple things to try and like scale up this model somehow. 
like there we just kind of, there are just like known ways to just try and do that and like maybe you'll get returns out of it and so you can imagine trying to kind of to scale up these past models and compare them to to what you could do right now it took me quite a while after i measured this trend to figure out what i thought it meant more like how to like merge it with with ai and compute in some way that was like some in some way that was like clean i think that well that's for the the intuition part when we consider that we have more compute and that each unit of compute can do more that it becomes clear that like somehow these two trends multiply you have to like kind of carefully do that it's not clear how to multiply them and how to think about that multiplication but but they should multiply and that the conception i found most useful is that or that we find most useful is that if we imagine how much more efficient it is to to train models of interest in 2018 than it would have been to just scale up training of 2012 models until they got to current capability levels like if we just thrown a lot of if we just given past models a lot of compute we didn't do we might have more parameters more more data some tuning but like nothing clever nothing more clever than just kind of this obvious kind of stuff, then how much more compute do we have now than we had in the past? And I would argue that now in this kind of, in this kind of framework that we can kind of multiply them and think about us having kind of 25 times the 300,000 amount of compute available in the largest experiments in 2018 compared to 2012. And that this is kind of like actually a, a, an underestimate of what's happened because the 25x doesn't measure the contribution of new capabilities. It didn't measure AlexNet. AlexNet didn't show up here in this estimation of progress between 2012 and 2018, even though it represented a lot of progress. And so when you unlock a new capability, you might have made it 100 times cheaper to do it than it was before by doing that new thing, or 1,000. And so a lot of, a lot of the gains in a domain are actually when the thing is unlocked, not when the thing keeps getting more efficient. So this is more like a floor. This is more like a floor and like a, a floor for how much algorithmic progress there is. And the floor is still surprisingly large. You sh- I, when I talk to AI researchers, they kind of expect it to more be like 10x or something. They're, it's still like more, it's still more. And it's, and it's more in some other domains. Like in translation, it's, it's like 60x over three years. People are particularly excited about language models right now, and, may, and maybe the progress in language models is faster. Is that, sorry, is that the, also a floor because using the same sort of method? I think I would argue about the 25x being the floor, and the 60x is more an argument as to why is the 25x a floor. Oh, I see. I thought you were saying like, well, if we were to do this instead of with AlexNet with some language model, we would have gotten a 60. Which is true. That, so yeah, I think you're interpreting what I think, like some aspect of it correctly, but maybe less like the claim that I'm trying to make with it. Whereas what I guess I'm trying to make the claim I'm trying to make is like, there's some more progress in some other domains of interest. And so like this AlexNet 25X is like, is lower than some of the other domains that were observed. Mm -hmm. I see, yeah. So if you're talking about like progress in AI in general, this is another argument for this being really conservative claim. Yeah. But then, yeah, if you were trying to talk about in a specific domain and you're particularly interested in language, then maybe focus on the language and trying to measure the language thing better. And then, yeah, also like this number hasn't really been optimized yet. Like nobody's tried to optimize this number, including kind of me. Wait, sorry. What do you mean optimize the number? Like optimize how much efficiency we are seeing? Not that exactly. More like optimize how much compute it get, takes to get to AlexNet level accuracy. AI researchers are trying to make the most performance systems for the most part. 
Sometimes they're trying to make more efficient systems. But when they're trying to make more efficient systems, it's usually at runtime, not in this like early training phase. And so we have this, I don't know, like a good heart's law style thing where it's like nobody's tried to optimize this thing yet. So maybe it's like a more reliable measure right now because this is just what happened without people trying to make this better. Yeah. Okay. So you've given some like theoretical reasons to expect performance to have increased a lot. Is that what we see? I mean, maybe that's, I think it's a bit harder to measure perhaps than the amount of compute, but can we say anything sketchy about whether performance is increasing the amount that we might expect given these other, given the increase in these inputs? I think there are some things we can say about that. Like, I think that kind of the amount of value that AI or and neural nets are creating is kind of a relevant, is a relevant way to think about that what that trend looks like over time. The amount of economic value? Yeah, economic value. Economic value is like downs. If you wanted to get more upstream, you could try to get to like implied economic value or like implied cash flows or something where when people are investing more, they're showing that they expect there to be more future cash flows. And so that's why like investment is kind of interesting. And so, yeah, I think both of those are ways you could try to talk about about AI progress in a way in, in a way that's still quantitative. But I think I think a lot of what people are generally talking about is how impressed are they by some new about by capabilities. They just kind of list all the capabilities over time and are like how impressed are these or how impressed are they by these? And then they argue that they argue something about what, like whether or not that what that means. And it's it, those arguments are like quite hard, I think, for to be made convincing, though I think they still are can be quite meaningful. Is that because people are just impressed by different things and there's no good arguments that this is more impressive, that one sort of capability is one more impressive than another? I think that it requires a lot of expertise. It's almost like evaluating those arguments is like kind of equivalent to making a research agenda over many years on AI and its difficulty because evaluating those arguments well implies that you could do that. I don't and understand. So I, what do you mean? That you could do what? So, so say I'm like a research lead, and I have to make a multi. I have to make like I have to direct other people to do AI research over multiple years and figure out what's relatively promising. That's like similarly difficult to reading these trends and making such a qualitative argument. Or like you need the same skill set to do both well. I think it's just extremely difficult to to evaluate such arguments. Is kind of the claim I'm trying to make. I definitely buy that claim. But what's what's the skill set involved that you're referring to? It's like. The, the skill set that like a research, an AI research lead has to have because they have to pick out what's promising to work on, given what we've observed. I was thinking maybe you were going to say, well, it's it's really understanding how difficult certain tasks are. And that kind of involves understanding how they are done. I think that's also true. You have to like, you have to know what's promising and what's tractable. And yeah, I think that's the kind of thing that it, that it is. And like the research leads are all going to pursue different paths. So you like don't, and they like, so you don't actually want them to agree because you want them to pursue different paths. And so it's not surprising that they disagree as to how to evaluate governance. So mostly I'm just trying to talk, I was just like trying to talk about or suggest that like the economic stuff might be more informative because it's like understandable at a broad level. I guess one small worry that comes to mind, maybe it's not small or maybe it's totally misguided about the economic measure is just well, investment is also what we're is, is is almost equivalent to what we're measuring when we measure the amount of compute going into something. So then 
I get a little worried if the point is to say like, well, how do the in, how does the amount how do the trends in the input compare to trends in the output? Which is like that seems like a really interesting question. I don't want to use the same thing for both. That sounds right in that for that lens. Yeah, I think like when I think about economic progress, I mostly think about kind of what industry is doing with AI systems. Like I think the most one of the most interesting deployments of AI systems is that you know. Google talks about maybe handling like 15% of search cases or something with like a new a new language model helping with that. It seems like one of the most biggest improvements to Google that's happened in a long time. And improving Google search is like has a lot of economic value. There's nothing in 2012 that was as cool or interesting as improving Google search that neural nets were doing or as like or as like producing as much value. And I don't think that's like the I think you you can just kind of try to chase down where was the economic value being created in different points in time in like a very broad way and be like, okay, this, these are orders of magnitude different. And I think it's harder to say like a lot, it's harder for me to say a lot more than that now, but I think that that's like a way you could do a, somebody could do a better job of this thing. I think the investment data is harder to read because it just kind of like shot up and then investment data is usually spiky. It usually like shoots up kind of too much in the beginning and then like flattens out. And maybe the summary of investment is like, People are still think AI is promising. <laughs> uh-huh. They still think it's like one of the things that they should like consider investing in and are like most interested in investing in. That's I think it's like hard to when like investment hasn't been going down as far as I can tell. Private investment in AI startups went from like seven billion in 2012 to 40 billion in 2018. That's kind of like indicative of the amount of money I see changing. It's like went up by five x or something. Investors think. And investors expect more kind of future cash flows. I think it's hard to get much past that in the investment domain. In the capture domain, all I have is like a couple examples of where where do I think AI is generating the most money right now. I think businesses use it to detect cracks in industrial processes. That's like what I've heard from people who sell AI systems to like big enterprises. Like what are they buying? And it's that. And that's kind of like ImageNet technology. Like you could have done that with ImageNet or a slightly better ImageNet, probably. I mean, you probably keep getting better at it, but that's maybe when it started to be useful. And like industrial processes really care about increasing their reliability. So there's some amount of money being made there. I'm not really sure, but it's a lot more money than there was in 2012, I think, or 2013. That's how I start going about it. So one thing I wanted to ask you, which now now I think maybe is is not going to be an answerable question, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway and see what happens. So... We see these inputs going up a lot. In the case of compute, it's exponential. If we thought that progress in capabilities was linear, then we might draw a pessimistic conclusion about our ability to increase progress in the, or like see like really fast progress in the future, because, you know, it would resemble this phenomenon in science where we're investing more and more, but seem to have linear outputs. And I was going to ask, do you think progress is linear? And maybe that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I think it's I think what I think it's a hard question to give a convincing answer to. Okay. I think my I think like what I was trying to set up with what I set up a little bit before is like I think in terms of economic captured value, I think we see something exponential in captured value, like re- returns that corporations or somebody else makes from from neural nets. I think that I get the feeling of an exponential thing, not a linear thing there. From looking at the examples. I'm looking at the examples because in like 2008, it's basically rounds to zero as far as I can tell. And I don't know, it seems like it seems like over tens, it seems like maybe over like, let's see, Google, I don't know. It seems like 
making Google better is like worth a lot. Say it made, say it made Google 0.1% better or 1% better. That's like a trillion dollars times one or 0.1%. That's like a lot more than the zero I ran it down to earlier. I think there's like more than that, but I think you only get from, from where we were at in 2010 to that with an exponential in terms of value being created. I think that's what we'd see if we measured it. I think that perceived impressiveness, it's like at different scales. So I think what people are saying, I think what people are mostly saying when they say that perceived impressiveness feels linear, there's a couple different things they could be saying. One is that they could be saying that they don't find what's happening surprising, that like given the past, the present doesn't look surprising. But maybe they, but, but, and, and like that's a kind of a different claim to engage on, but it's like a, not about linearity or not. It's really hard to say whether or not something's linear without kind of defining the units crisply. And so I think that I think that that makes it harder. I think another thing that people could be saying is say you have some frequency of big insights. Like people are like very impressed by like the transformer. And when I the thing that I mentioned before, like how language models that they was like the transformer is this is this large result that's used very broadly and that was a 60x improvement over another like very well known seek to seek, which was kind of like, yeah, the it was like the first the first translation system with neural networks that was like well-known is seek to seek It was a 60X improvement over that two to three years later. And so one way you could argue for a linear thing is to be like, how often do we get something like this? Do we get something like this at the same frequency all the time? Or are we getting these things more frequent, the things that are a given size? But then you have to be like, okay, here's a result. Like how impressive is this result compared to other results? But I think, I think that could be measured. Um, Michael Nielsen and Patrick Collison tried to measure is progress slowing down or not? in in physics and a bunch of other domains by having people pairwise compare the impressiveness of results because i think that's like an, an operation people can do pretty easily and i think you could try and do something like that in ml to try and be like is progress speeding up or slowing down or staying the same and 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 then you could i think then you could kind of try to argue for linear list if like the most impressive results seem equivalent to the most impressive results in two or three years ago that'd be like another way you could argue for for linearness i think that way you I'd be reasonably likely to come to that being constant. I would read a blog post that did that study. Okay, so before we leave progress in AI, are there any other developments that you think are particularly interesting and worth talking about? Well, I, I guess I, I have a different feeling as to like how important algorithmic progress is and versus compute progress after doing this AI efficiency thing. I think a first order model is kind of doomed, like a model that only takes into account compute or algorithms. I think that the effects are kind of in, close enough to each other in magnitude and they multiply. And so because of this, you really need to represent both to understand what's happening. At least they multiply in like the space I'm interested in. Sorry, when you say they're the effect is close enough to each other, wasn't one 25 times over this time period and one 300,000 times? Is that not the thing you're saying is close together? Well, but the 25 is like a lower bound. And I made some arguments as to how it could be like a lower bound by like 100 or 1000x some of the time. I see. I don't think I realized that it was that much of a lower bound. Yeah. So maybe a way, so, so a way you could think about it is when you scale up past systems, sometimes they just kind of smoothly scale up and keep giving you returns. But other times they just kind of fall off a cliff and like you put, you could put astronomical amounts of compute into them and they wouldn't do anything to get to some certain level of capability. And so I think sometimes you, I think sometimes the algorithmic progress makes something possible with, you know, a hundred or a thousand times less compute than would have been needed before. And that that's like not, 
that's like a not you can't I don't think you could ignore such events being possible in your model. But even if they even just to, to step back and make the claim slightly weaker or like let more defensible, just the fact that they multiply means that you care about any two X's and any four X's from either one. And so just at that, just realizing that I think they multiply makes it or in this space makes it so for me that I, I care quite a bit about about both and about measuring progress in both. Wouldn't we have known that they multiply before measuring compute and measuring algorithmic innovation? Because isn't the argument that they multiply just that one is how much you can do with the other? Yeah. So I think they, I think they multiply. I think that if one of them multiplied, but was basically static. So say, say that the amount of algorithmic progress was more like it went up by like, it went down by like two X, I don't know, over this like five year period, it starts to feel more like a thing you could just ignore and be like, we could add it, but that's like a detail of the model. It's not like this key component of the model that you like is the second thing you add. Okay. That makes sense. Whereas like people reading AI and compute, they might infer some like they might infer like a pretty compute centric viewpoint from it some of the time. I think I think that this is kind of for me, I think of them both as like very important effects to understand if you're trying to think about about progress. And yeah, I think that another thing that's like maybe interesting that we didn't talk about is like the slow AI progress viewpoint. Some people look at what's been happening and they're just like, this looks slow to me. I don't know, like people are giving this thing too much attention. They look at the performance and think this looks slow. Mm, no, they just like look at AI. They look at AI capabilities progress over the last six or seven years. Uh-huh. And they can say like, we're not solving the most important problems. We haven't made progress on the problems that matter. We are not getting breakthroughs that are meaningful at any at much frequency. Like we're not getting a new transformer every six months. We're getting this kind of, this is like the kind of thing that we get every several years. And so, yeah, I just think that, um, in the in in kind of the interest of like giving people some kind of overall take as to like if I was how to think about AI progress, I'd want them to kind of kind of have this like I think this other viewpoint is worth bringing up that when that I think these are the best the, the best argument that AI progress might indeed be slow is that we there we could you could say that there are problems that we really care about we're mostly measuring progress on the problems that that aren't the most important ones and that when we look at how quickly we make progress on these most important ones. And just project how much, how many of those chunks of progress we need to really get to something really impactful. Maybe it makes progress look quite far away. And that there's kind of like a, I gave kind of like a compute centric view, and I would also give this this kind of other view and be like and encourage people to have kind of an ensemble of both of these views and to take new evidence into like how much it supports each view and what is it, how does it change each of these views is how because I think they both have merit and should be taken seriously. And how do you think the combination that's informed by these observations in compute and algorithmic efficiency, how do you think that does impact how we should think about the slow AI view? When I look at, you know, 80,000 hours and what you guys talk about in EA, you just, you talk, you talk about AI a lot and I'm just like, yeah, it seems, I agree. We should talk about, it. that's about how much focus and attention AI should get when I like hold and like, but this is, these are like the views that I use to get there where I'm just like, yeah, I have like a bunch of uncertainty. People kind of expect different things. I put some weight on each and try and like understand the arguments for both because I think what can happen, like another way you can kind of... Sorry, both the view that both the view that AI is going to be slower and less impactful than maybe, or, or less impactful in the near future than some people think and the view that it's going to be very impactful quite soon. Yeah, yeah. And so like different people make each of these arguments and I like, I just kind of try would encourage people to like steel man each of them 
and give some weight to each as to how they try to hold an overall view of AI progress in their head to like have to have like model uncertainty about what's going on in AI at the level of what some of the major different viewpoints people have. And like this, and I'm just kind of, I'm sharing like the best argument for things being slow because I think that that's an important viewpoint also. Is there anything else that you would look at in order to update your view on AI progress that's worth mentioning? I think one of the most interesting things to keep kind of watching and thinking about are kind of what happens with sample efficiency over time. That's like another, that, as far as important problems that people would say we're not making progress on, um, sample efficiency gets brought up a lot where like... What's sample efficiency? So to, sorry, to play a game like Go or, or Defense of the Ancients Dota or StarCraft or, or, or any game, AI systems will often might play like 10,000 lifetimes of games or something. They play like just a lot more than a person would have ever had to play to like learn that game to like a professional level. And so making progress on sample efficiency is, is often brought up as like one of the one of the ways in which, you know, maybe we're not actually making progress. And so I think that improvements in sample efficiency are like worth paying quite a bit of attention to. Sorry, can you just say a little bit why you think it's so important? Yeah, I mean, I could start with like an economic argument for why it's important. Like for some things, there's only 10 or 100 data points in the world. It's just like really expensive to get data. And so if your system only works when there's millions of data points, then you just can't use your system. Also, some systems data can be generated. So like you could be, say I'm like, you know, I show up, I'm like your new coworker and you can teach me to do stuff. It's just gonna, you're just gonna have to show me a thousand times. That's pretty frustrating. That's not a, that's a like much less useful system than a system that can be shown fewer times and learn more. But I, maybe this is like one of the most interesting ways you can make progress in data is not making larger data sets or more data sets. It's needing less data. If you need less data, then there's just way more problems you can solve. And so, yeah, I think that yeah, making progress on sample efficiency is quite interesting. Are there any tasks that AI has human level sample efficiency at or, or even better than human level sample efficiency at right now? I think some of the more interesting work there is a paper that from Josh Tenenbaum's group where they like learned to generate characters in an alphabet similarly quickly as humans. I think it wasn't entire it wasn't entirely based on neural nets. I think it had I think there was some other things going on in there, but I'm not super familiar with with the details, but I think that they might yeah. So, I think there has been some work, but I think that there's kind of two ways you could try to measure it. You could try to be like, what can we do at human level sample efficiency? And how much does the amount of samples we need on old problems that we use, how much is that going down over time? I think both of those ways of looking at it are, are interesting. Have there been any milestones on either of those metrics? You could think of AlphaGo as a milestone in this, in the sense that before it required a bunch of human labeled games and knowledge about Go, and then it didn't require that. And it just moved from, so it, it still required a bunch of data, like rollouts of simulations, but it, it did require a different kind of data than it would have required otherwise. And so maybe that's, maybe that's quite, I think that's probably like the most interesting progress that happened. But you, but you can also imagine later systems of AlphaGo that required less compute and just fewer games. And that would, those would be, that would be an improvement in sample efficiency. Sometimes sample efficiency is an improvement in compute and other, other times it's not and, so yeah, I mostly, I, I, yeah, I, I less have like interesting trends here to point to and more to say like, here's an interesting way of thinking about data 
and like a thing that I think is like, I think it's good to like say what kinds of things we should be looking at to update us. So let's move on and talk about the safety teams at OpenAI. Can you start by describing the Foresight team and what you do? Yeah, let's see. So the Foresight team tries to kind of understand the science under underlying machine learning and and macro trends in ML. And you could you could think of it as yeah, trying to like inform decision making around this this should like inform like research agendas, it should inform how people think about how it, it's like informative to like policymakers. It's in it's informative to people who are thinking about working on AI or not. It's informative to people in in, in industry. But you you could think of it as like just more just trying to be like really rigorous is like another way of thinking about it. Like it's it's a bunch, it's mostly ex-physicists. And physicists just want to physicists just want to understand things. So like ML is mostly driven by trying to achieve state-of-the-art performance, which is like a, a fine thing for a field to be driven by. It's like very measurable. It's clear when you do it and it's like economically useful, but it's less understanding, right? Whereas here you have just a team who just like really wants to understand. So the, the, name, the name almost makes it sound like what you're trying to do is forecast AI. It's the foresight team, but it sounds like a lot of what you do, I mean, maybe that's part of the end goal, but a lot of what you do is produce this somewhat backward looking research on what's been going on and driving progress so far and explaining what's happening in the field. Yeah, I mean, we've talked mostly about like the macro ML trends. We could talk, I think another way of like explaining what the Foresight team team does is to talk about like the two other kind of papers that it's well released. Yeah, do you want to just briefly describe those other two papers? Yeah, so there's this one, this one kind of blog post I'd recommend people look at how AI training scales. And they talk about this kind of parameter they found, they call the gradient noise scale. They, there's just like this aspect of a system of a system that they can take a measurement on, on that you can t- measure any ML system on it. And that will predict the parallelizability of that task. Like how many computers can I use at once to train the system? And, and we've learned that uh, complex tasks, when you look, they looked at like a bunch of tasks, you know, and complex tasks have larger, empirically just are, are more parallelizable. And that's clear when you look at this, this measurement of them. And that might vary by like, you know, by like 10 to the fifth or something like Dota, like a video, a very complex video game versus MNIST. That's like a, that's like a difference of a thousand and how parallelizable they are. And what's MNIST? MNIST is like a handwriting recognition task. It's okay. like the, the thing that people did in the nineties. Interesting. And what's the other one? The other one is called scaling laws of like neural language models, something, something along those lines. And you could think of that as very related to the AI and efficiency work where they scaled up systems and saw they could kind of predict how a bigger version of a system would perform on a metric that matters in machine learning. And, and like they were trying to do predict text and they could they found this trend where it was just like very, very, where models were just like very smoothly getting better as they got scaled up is like the main thing that they did. And this kind of is related to the AI and efficiency thing I brought up earlier in that, you know, this is a technique that you could use to try and understand progress in a more complete way is to look at old systems we have, try and scale them up, see what that implies about what would have happened if we scaled them up and then understand how much better our current systems are more rigorously as a result. 
Cool. So it seems like OpenAI has a bunch of different safety teams and the Foresight team is only one of them. Do you want to talk just briefly about the other teams and what they do? Yeah. So, well, there's a team called Reflection and that's like the team that Paul Cristiano leads, who's been on this podcast. They think about problems like how do you make it so that a system will take human feedback well and think about like the long-term problem of having systems be alignable with you know what people really want, with what some a person or some group of people really wants, rather than uh, kind of go off on the rails. And so, yeah, I think that's like a thing people. That's what kind of people generally think when they think of AI safety, and I, that problem seems very important, but doesn't like resonate with with everybody because it's kind of abstract. And but it's like not the only safety thing happening. In addition to foresight and and reflection, other teams. There's a there's the clarity team. They try to make AI systems interpretable. You could think of, you know, if you're if you're running a system and you're if, say you're going to put some system in charge, of, like or give some system quite a bit of power at some point in time, then the more you can like understand what it's actually doing and why, and can like kind of yeah reason about what 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 it's doing and why. It's kind of like it feels uh, that team feels kind of like foresight to me in that it's about rigor and understanding, but in kind of a different way. Yeah, it seems like it's about understanding the systems themselves and foresight team seems to be more about understanding the field or something like that. Yeah, where it's going. Yeah, so yeah. So that's they like recently released this this paper called Microscope and like you the 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 like the like motivation of this thing was there's a time where we we made a microscope and a lot of science happened. You just like started looking at cells. It felt very different. It like is just like you could just be like, hey, look, I looked at this, I looked at a bunch of cells and I figured a bunch of stuff out. And what if we did that kind of thing with machine learning systems where you just made it like very cheap and easy for people to look at them and try to understand them and zoom in on them at the individual neuron level? They like recently did something in that I think is, is quite cool. You mean like actually building a tool to like try to, or like or sketching out what a, such a tool would look like or just talking about what the impact of a, such a tool would be? Well, that's like their, their motivation. But yeah, they they released a collection of visualizations for like every layer of several well-known models so that it's easy to do the to like figure out what things like individual neurons are doing in a bunch of well-known machine learning models. And that, yeah, that's that's what they did. They so they they call it microscope and they that's kind of what they they feel like it is. And that seems resonates with me. Yeah, there's another team that focuses on safe exploration, which is it's, it's harder to talk about that one well their work without getting more more technical I think but but you could you could think of it as this this problem where maybe a classic example of a problem they talk they, that happens is say I'm like a, a robot house cleaner and I'm trying to like clean up and like I don't want to break any vases I prefer to never break a vase how do I explore my world or I'm like a baby how do I explore my world without accidentally doing a lot of damage it's like an op- open hard question so how integrated is the work of the safety teams with the work of other teams? So, for instance, do the safety and policy teams at OpenAI work together a lot? Or, you know, how closely is safety understood as part of capabilities research? How do they all sort of fit together? Well, first I can talk about how Foresight works with policy, where like one of the main points Jack Clark has been making is that, who's the head of policy at OpenAI, is that measuring AI progress is important. And that's like a thing that governments could do that would just be like strictly good. So 
for them. It like just get them better information and like get them more capabilities to like understand and like make better decisions in the future while like getting them kind of, you know, connected while like helping them build connections and in industry that they that they want to build. And so, you know, the Foresight team just we try to produce these like good examples of measurement that we hope will be useful and that like will will just lead to ongoing things that get measured that are of interest. Because you're hoping actors in government will be like, oh, we're going to do some of that research too. We see now what it can look like. Yeah. So like start tracking some of the things we, we think they should, they should track and also to like do some of the measurement that they, that requires a lot of expertise to do. There's like some measure, it's like, would be hard to get the government to start maybe doing this kind of AI research on macro AI progress. That sounds hard to get them to do, but we can do that and give it to them. And so, yeah, that's one, that's a, that's a way we interact with them. And then you, you could think that like when you're just kind of trying to do good policy work, that you're going to have technical questions lots of the time and that the people on the safety team are just quite likely to answer your questions for, for them if they can. And so that's one of the ways we, we collaborate quite a bit is we just try to like make sure that they understand whatever technical questions they need to understand to do their jobs. Cool. That makes sense. The reason I asked about whether safety is conceptualized as part of capabilities research is I just sometimes hear people argue about this, uh, whether like safety is sort of properly thought of as separate or, or part of capabilities. Like you wouldn't want to make, you wouldn't want to make a system that isn't safe because then that's a way in which it's not capable. I'm just curious if how it's thought of at OpenAI in your experience. It's interesting. It's not, a, it's, it's not, I, th I guess I think, of, well, maybe I could just start with foresight. I think knowing what is going to happen, like having a better, being able to better predict what will happen is both makes, puts you into like a safer space and a more capable space. And so I think that maybe the way to think about it is not our safety and capabilities totally divorced, but how much optimization power are you putting into two different desirable aspects of a system? So it could be that you want to make, you could make, want to make a system cheap. You could want to make a system safe. You could want to make it capable. You could put like different amounts of power into each of these things. And that kind of the more optimal, more of your optimization power you're putting into trying to make sure that it can be safe then like, yeah, just the more likely you should expect it is will actually in fact be, be safe. And yeah. And so, and like the more you're motivated by that kind of concern by like making sure the system is is goes well the more likely it is to go well and that's I, I think it's hard to to disentangle it more than that that makes sense so what should somebody do if they want to do safety work at OpenAI? first of all are you guys hiring and second of all like what sort of steps should they take what kind of skills and knowledge do they need yeah i Definitely, we're definitely hiring. I expect we'll always be hiring. And I think that, like a thing I know in particular that the Foresight team is we really need research engineers and that, that there's kind of a spectrum between research scientists and engineering, but you know, you could kind of caricature it as research science, like people that look more like research scientists are more likely to have gotten PhDs and are more likely to do kind of work that's a bit more theoretical. Whereas engineers are more likely to try to make infrastructure that makes it so that you can run a lot of experiments quickly or to like re-implement things well and reliably. And they like specialize in that a little bit more. And so, for instance, there's like three physicists on the Foresight team now, and two of them were theoretical physicists and one of them was an experimental physicist. And the experimental physicist is 
the one that's more the research engineer. I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Tom Hennigan, who actually like learned about, who like got excited to apply to OpenAI because of because of an ADK podcast. That's awesome. And so, so yeah, I think a research engineer, some of like these look more like people who were in some other domain that often, like they often were, were you know, computer scientists or, or software engineers somewhere else that were always like, were like kind of like math and ML curious and just kind of taught themselves and then at some point made a, a jump. And so I think, yeah, I think, you know, people can, they kind of start in different places. I think you guys had a podcast with Daniel Ziegler and he kind of talked about his path to becoming a, a researcher. Like to, to, and I think that his path was kind of like what, what a lot of research engineers' paths might, might look like, where you just kind of start re-implementing models, find someone to guide your learning. Maybe, maybe an interesting, like a novel take on becoming any career is you want what you want, what, like what being an AI researcher looks like at open, like one way you could model it is there's somebody who wants to spend at least an hour a week talking to you and overseeing your research and thinks that research would be interesting. And that that's kind of like where you're kind of trying to get to. And that you could make progress towards that if there was somebody who thinks that, you know, what you can produce in what you might be able to produce three months from now might be interesting. And they're like willing to talk to you for an hour or half an hour to help you figure out like, what should my next three months of learning look like? And they and they like help, they help guide your learning to make sure it's like useful to them or like it's like in the direction that'd be useful to them. And then at some point they're like, well, here's some vague ideas that like, if you did any of these things, that'd be interesting. And then you like come back like a month later and like you did something that's interesting to them. And then eventually it's two weeks and then one week. And then they're like, well, you kind of work for me now because <laughs> you've, you, they're, they're like, it's like you keep, okay. <laughs> you keep, they keep being willing to invest more time, but you really need this guidance to, I think like this guidance is like immensely valuable to you. Like if you didn't get them to give you, tell you what to learn, you could have learned very different things and then like never got into a position where any or anybody was trying to oversee work. So has this happened with people at OpenAI where like some person who doesn't work for OpenAI asks them for an hour of their time every three months for at first and then sort of slowly it becomes the case that they work there? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to like describe it as like the smooth transition, but like, yeah, I think my my friend Tom Brown, who was, was part of how I got interested in AI, he like made me take Coursera. He wanted me to take Coursera classes with him, and may have got convinced me to read Superintelligence a long time ago. He he got advice on what to learn from Greg Brockman, one of the co-founders of OpenAI, and then eventually got to a place where he was working at, at OpenAI full time. And AI and efficiency was was joint work with Tom Brown. Yeah, it seems like a, it might be a slightly, it might be like not quite the first step to have that meeting with somebody at OpenAI because, you know, you want to first be able to, you know, not have it be a, a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, so I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to describe like, what is that, what should you be asking in that first meeting? And I think what you should be asking is, and it doesn't have to be a meeting, it can be an email or something, but it's like, what should I go learn in the next three months or like next month? And do you feel like people are usually pretty receptive to those sorts of questions? I think people are open to that question, especially if they somewhat know you. Like, I think you can, I think you can walk your social graph to find who is like the person who can give me this advice, who I already know or who knows somebody out. And I'm just trying to structure the question you should be asking them, which is like, what's, 
what's worth learning given kind of my eventual goal and like how far away do I seem from that goal? And like, I don't know, you, you have this like very limited resource, this like expert time and like you're trying to leverage it for as much as possible. And so you're trying to use it to like guide your, your learning process. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a way to kind of learn. It's like a general set of ways. It's like a general way to learn like a lot of things inside of an organization, new career, lots of things. And to like conceptualize it as smooth. Yeah, that's, that's really useful. At OpenAI, is there a more formal process that like some people should take? Oh yeah, there's like a fellows program. And you could think of that as kind of like the residency at Google, if people are familiar with that. But it's, it's often people that had technical careers that, you know, if you were like, if you got a PhD in something else and have been learning machine learning on your own, then like you're for, for a little while, for maybe a couple months or something, then like, or longer, but, but whatever, that's not what your PhD is in, then those people often apply to be fellows. And that's kind of like the entry point. So let's move on to talking about AI hardware as a possible path to impact. This is a little bit more speculative, but do you think that working in AI hardware, developing chips, or researching AI hardware progress might be helpful for positively shaping the development of AI? And if so, how? Yeah, I think, well, let's see. I think there's quite a bit of potential in the domain. I think, well, like a a very like concrete thing is recently OpenAI just had this this blog post and paper around around trust and like how you can kind of how AI organizations might be able to make like uh, verifiable claims in the future about their work and like build trust between between organizations and like you know broadly people might be used to we're thinking about coordination being hard and you want institutions to coordinate and like this is kind of discussing that. And I think there's some places that hardware falls in there that people might mostly be motivated by from like a safety perspective. One is they talk about kind of secure hardware for machine learning. So you could kind of think of this as this hybrid of like you guys have talked about maybe security is a quite interesting thing for people to go into. There's like some kind, maybe one of the more interesting, one one part of security that might be particularly interesting to AI is kind of, yeah, how is like having secure hardware that people trust. So, so what does that mean? Yeah, there was this, there was this thing that if you care about security, you saw it was called, we talked about, about Spectre and it was like a secure of a vulnerability on, on a bunch of different processors and a bunch of different, you know, CPUs. And you could think of it as like, it's lower than software. If your hardware has a security vulnerability, it doesn't matter what software you're running. Just everybody's running, everybody has a CPU. And if it's insecure, then all of them are insecure. And so, yeah, it's this, that's kind of how I would talk about hardware security. It's just, it's like a subfield of security that like, maybe you'd be like more motivated by if you were motivated by trying to make AI go well. That was like very concrete to be like, okay, there's at least some paths that you could ex- you would expect would be neglected otherwise because you kind of have to have this motivation of making things go well to be interested in them. And they're just starting to be kind of pointed out. So that's like another reason to think they might be neglected. I guess I, would, I, I wouldn't be that surprised if there were like pretty big economic incentives to having secure hardware as well. I think there are pretty big economic incentives to having secure hardware. So yeah, I'm not trying to make a super strong argument. I'm just trying to be like, where might I nudge somebody and if they are like interested in that kind of thing and pointing towards towards that. I think that if you try to get back towards 
AI hardware generally, I would mostly just, I, I could see a world in which hardware is like in the world where AI is influential, AI hardware might also be influential. And like, so you get this like very abstract argument. Be in the, be in the places that are influential in the world where Be in the places that are influential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Worlds where it matters. Yeah. I think that's, it's hard to get a lot better than that with AI hardware. But yeah, I think that in those worlds, hardware might be quite influential if you think about it from an economics point of view, that there's like some chance that hardware will like capture quite a bit of the value or, or more of the value than software. Is that basically because if really amazing progress is made in AI and it becomes extraordinarily profitable, then the demand for chips that can lead to really efficient computation will be super high. And so whoever's making those chips gets super rich. Is that basically the, the story? Yeah, that's 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 the world in which AI hardware has a lot of impact. Yeah, I mean, so I also just had this sort of inchoate sense of like, well, it seems like that's an important thing, so maybe people should go toward it. But I, I'm not exactly sure of the, the mechanisms whereby you could actually make sure that things go relatively well in, in those worlds. I guess by like maybe influencing your organization, maybe trying to get them to take the right cautions or adopt, you know, certain kinds of business practices that make AI more broadly beneficial. So I know that there's this idea coming out of the Center for Governance of AI at the Future of Humanity Institute called the Windfall Clause, which is basic idea firms pre-commit to sharing a bunch of the a bunch of their windfall if things go a certain way. And I guess that's one way that people working at hardware companies could try to make AI more broadly beneficial. Yeah, I think I think if hardware companies signed up for a windfall clause, that'd be really amazing sort of progress. I mean, you could you could think of OpenAI's LP as like an implementation of the windfall clause. Do you want to describe that? Yeah. So at like a high level, after some amount of returns are made to people that hold like a kind of, of equity in this in this limited partnership then like all future profits or returns will go to a nonprofit. And so, yeah, which is. Yeah, sort of its own windfall clause. Yeah. So that's, that's, that, that's OpenAI's LP. And I think, I think it'd be quite good if, if more organizations had such a thing. I think it's like, it takes a lot of influence within an organization to get them to commit to something like that. So you know, if you if you imagine somebody who's like founded a hardware company, they get to do that if they want. Probably they're going to have to negotiate it with their investors. But I think that that there there is somewhere in the the tales of of payoff of influence that you could have. Like any executive might also have a chance. Anybody that's that was early at this hardware company that has like a close relationship to this executive, you know, you might whoever like can actually make the decision to do this thing. So. Yeah, I think I think that that's like another reasonable example of how things could go quite well by influencing influencing hardware. I think maybe maybe another argument for it is just some amount of diversified portfolio. There's probably some people that have a particular fit for hardware. They're like particularly interested in it. They think it's an, a particularly interesting problem. They already have like strong connections in it or something. I think that it's 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 got potential. Yeah, I guess like one worry about this is just, you know, in order to get into a place where you can have that kind of influence, 
you're going to have to have a lot of success, you know, probably speeding up AI hardware progress. And it seems like not totally clear that that would be a good thing because it could give us less, re- you know, time to like research ways to make AI safe and beneficial if AI hardware is getting better and better so we can use more compute more and more quickly. Yeah, I think I think that similar argument could argue against doing most AI research, like at least qualitatively. Maybe there's an ad absurdum argument against it. I'm not sure. Like I think uh, a related point, people sometimes talk about trying to coordinate to slow down AI progress and like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be good? And I guess my response to that is that having the level of coordination in the world where we could do that kind of thing sounds amazing. Just having that level of coordination. And that seems like the good part, but we seem like so far away from that, that is just outside of the considerations that I generally think about. And so I kind of have, I, that, that's kind of my like reflexive response. Yeah. I, so I, two, two things on this. So one thing is that it seems like when you're doing some kinds of AI research, you might be actually able to make it more safe by designing it in a certain way. And that at least, you know, I'm not sure, but it doesn't seem obvious that there are ways of doing that in AI hardware. Yeah, I think it's. I think yeah, I think it's a research question. That's a it's a research question. I would be interested in not not researching myself, of course, because I'd be totally unqualified. But somebody do. Yeah, I I think there's some portion of it that if you want to be quite careful, there are like probably things you can think about that like are pure safety or security things that aren't that aren't really about about capabilities. But I I I think that but that maybe what I was trying to paint was like one path towards a lot of impact. And that pa- and like paths towards lots of impact have risks and other stuff in them. It's like pretty impossible. I think it's like quite hard to like get to. There was like lots of risk of lots of different kinds around along this like pretty along this like path towards a lot of impact of getting a windfall clause at a hardware company. So I think we have. I think I think there's risks in going down such a thing. Yeah, I guess just trying to figure out whether the risks are worth it. I think yeah, I agree. That is the, the question. <laughs> I'm I'm like I'm not that I'm not particularly opinionated on it. My opinionated thing is mostly just like think about the tail outcomes and how they would like actually happen. And that's kind of why I brought up it might require a lot of influence inside of a company to get them to adopt a windfall clause. That makes sense. I guess related to this, it seems like there could be a path that is a bit less risky, something like AI hardware policy, which is not really a named field right now, but not so much going into hardware companies, but trying to work with governments or other sorts of bodies that might be able to regulate AI hardware or perhaps, you know, create the kinds of incentives that would make it advance in, at the right times in the right places. Does that seem like a promising path to you? I think that hardware expertise is worth quite a bit. It's not that too policy and too forecasting. So for instance, the kind of person who I'd be like most interested in forecasting more and trying to like make good forecasts about like Moore's law and other trends is somebody who has been building chips for a while or has worked in building chips for a while. I think there aren't that many of those people or like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen somebody from that background that is working in policy yet, but I, my guess is that the same, that they could be very useful at some time and that they it'd be like reasonable to try starting now 
with that kind of thing in mind. But that's like pretty speculative. I know less about that than the forecasting type thing that like I just, I think hardware forecasting is like very interesting. Cool. So maybe somebody who has experience in hardware, but wants to sort of convert that expertise into trying to make safe and beneficial AI more likely, they could go down a sort of research route looking into Moore's law and what we might expect to happen to it. And like, maybe they could go into a policy position or like, they'd probably be very valuable there. I don't know at the moment how receptive policymakers would be to that kind of thing, but it seems like it could be valuable. Yeah. I mean, I think they would have to be, I mean, right now they'd have to be the kind of person that, for instance, my, there was never a job description of my job at OpenAI. There was never a job rec. I just kind of started trying to do this job and... So did you did you take the route that you discussed before? Yeah, I met someone at OpenAI and then started talking to them more frequently, and then they became my manager at OpenAI. Like it was, it was yeah, that was the that was the path for me. That's probably much less likely to happen in like more formal domains, like in the policy world, I would think. But so I think then what you look for is you get your first job at an inform at a place where you can show up informally. Like some places you can't, you generally can't. It's harder to do that in the government or something. But there's some place that that does. That, that is like some places vary on that. So you just apply to the informal places first and you like walk up the, the chain. Sometimes there's a way to get like some minimum credential. I think like a, a public policy masters or something is kind of one way where people get a credential quite quickly that makes them seem reasonable. So it's like you could be somebody that has one of those and has a background in hardware. And then all of a sudden you're like one of the most credentialed people there is. It could happen pretty quickly. That sounds like a really interesting route. I'm uh, yeah, curious if any listeners will be able to do something like it. So I think we should probably wrap up. But before we do, is there any sort of underappreciated idea that you think our listeners would benefit from hearing? Yeah, I mean, something that you guys talked about, well, that Alan Defoe talked about on one of your guys' podcasts was, was that he had decided that he was going to work on kind of AI policy once we beat Go. But that was like going to be his trigger. He could kind of like ignore AI until that happened. And then then he, then he would work on it. And I think this is like a very good way of, of viewing things that there isn't a lot of evidence for right now, or, or that the, the evidence seems too murky or like too, too small amounts of it to make a decision, is to just be like, when would there, when, what would be enough evidence for me to like pay attention to this thing or to start working on it? And, you know, to, to think about those kinds of, of triggers for, for people's major decisions around, around AI or, or around other things. I mean, it must be kind of hard to pick a trigger, right? And then not reconsider it. I could imagine like picking the go trigger, but then you get there and you're like, oh, but I was misguided. I didn't realize how not impressive that was or, or this is going to be or something like that. Yeah, I think there's some downside. I mean, it's, it's, it, I think what happens otherwise is that it's like reality is unsurprising and like you just, you just think that you expected that. So I think there's, you I think there's trade offs. There was a time when you didn't expect that to, to be yeah. business as usual. I think commitments like that you should maybe think of as like, you know, 80 or 90% commitments or something. Like you're not, you haven't literally bound your hands, but this is kind of your strong intention as to like what, what would convince you. And, yeah, I think that that's, that's like a thing to do if, I think another, another way you could phrase it is if you believe AI progress is fast, what would progress look like that would convince you it's slow? Paint a picture of that five years from now, what does slow progress look like to you? And now you're like, oh yeah, progress is actually slow. And what could have happened that would convince you it's actually fast? That you can make 
you can make what would update you clear to yourself and others. And that like for your for big decisions, this is like generally worthwhile. It's like a lot of rigor to do to, for, for smaller things. Yeah, I like to think about this. Yeah, I guess it's it's another version, I guess, of getting precise about your beliefs. Yeah, that's my style. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, this has been really interesting, and I feel like I've learned a lot from this interview. So thank you so much. Thanks, Arden. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Arden and Danny. If you'd like to hear more from Arden, you can find that in episode 67 with David Chalmers, episode 72 with Toby Ord, episode 66 with Peter Singer, and episode 75 with Michelle Hutchinson. There's also a bonus conversation between me and her on demandingness, uh, work-life balance, and injustice that came out back on February 25th. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Karen Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, transcripts by Zachy Yorhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.